Welcome to the Smarter Healthcare Podcast, where we meet the brightest minds transforming healthcare with your host, Kathy Susich. Welcome to episode 21 of the Smarter Healthcare Podcast. Our guest is Daniel Dawes, a widely respected scholar, researcher, educator, and leader in the health equity, health reform, and mental health movements. He is executive director of the Satcher Health Leadership Institute at Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia, and a professor of health law, policy, and management. Daniel is also co-founder of the Health Equity Leadership and Exchange Network, and he is author of two books, 150 Years of Obamacare and The Political Determinants of Health. In this conversation, we talk about the political determinants of health and health equity. This was a fabulous conversation. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Daniel. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Could you start by sharing with us a little bit about your background in health policy? Sure. Well, it's great to be with you today, Kathy. And, um, you know, I'll just start with an episode, an experience that I had about 20 years ago that really fueled my desire to get involved in health policy. At that time, you know, it involved a woman who was um, a patient in the emergency department at a major hospital in South Florida. And um, I had convinced the CEO at the time to let me volunteer with the the hospital to, to actually shadow some of his executives and to get a feel for why it is that I had observed in my own family uh, inequities, um, you know, from generation to generation. And I wanted to understand what were the barriers that were preventing my family members from being able to, you know, achieve optimal health, essentially. So he allowed me to shadow some of his uh, executives. And the first place they put me was the emergency department. And at that time, there was a woman who had um, uh, been uh, She'd been brought to the emergency department uh, on a gurney, and uh, you could tell that she was in a lot of pain. Um, She was writhing in pain, and I thought, I wonder what's wrong with her. And you could see the triage nurse at the time trying to communicate, but was having a difficult time communicating. Um, And so she sent for another nurse. Apparently, this uh, patient uh, had immigrated from Haiti and spoke limited English. Uh, She spoke uh, Haitian Creole. And so she sent over for a nurse who she suspected could communicate with this patient. And it took maybe not even 10 seconds before that nurse went over to the triage nurse and said, I don't understand what she's saying. I have no idea what she's saying. I don't speak um, uh, French or Haitian Creole. I speak English. And as they were arguing, um, I thought, huh, I wonder how many times this happens in healthcare entities across the United States, right? Not just here in South Florida, but um, in New York City, California, in, in Omaha, Nebraska, Chicago, Denver, you name it. And, um, and it was really that, that moment that I recognized that, um, you know, patients can be extremely vulnerable in our health system, but the providers, right, are having to deal with um, very diverse Um, you know, when you talk about uh, limited English uh, proficient patients, how difficult it can be to provide health services to these patients. And so it really was a complex health system that we were operating in um, with multiple dimensions that had to be addressed. So that really got me excited and interested to understand what had been 
done to address the issue, right? Or these issues that I had observed. And I started researching and exploring, and I recognized at the time uh, that, um, you know, in the late 1990s, you had uh, Dr. David Satcher, who was then the Assistant uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services, and, um, and the 16th U.S. Surgeon General, leading a campaign uh, to address racial and ethnic health disparities in the country. And I thought, oh, this is fascinating. After that, you know, Congress had actually um, authorized the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality to create a national healthcare disparities and a national quality uh, report. And in addition to that, they authorized the National Academy of Medicine to conduct a study looking at the unequal uh, treatment uh, in this country um, when it comes to racial and ethnic minority patients. So once those reports came out, you can imagine I read them from cover to cover to learn, you know, what the experts were saying, um, you know, was occurring in other hospitals and other clinics and, you know, federally qualified health centers and so forth across the country. Well, you know, that I, I felt those reports as, you know, groundbreaking as they were, didn't quite get to the root cause of these issues. And, um, and I decided to enroll myself or apply really uh, to a leadership development program with a major health system now outside of South Florida, this time in Orlando, Florida. And, um, and I made the case to these executives that I really wanted to do something about it. I wanted to create a program that would bolster cultural competency in their health system, that would help to eliminate any disparities among their patient population groups, right? And I thought they would have opened up their arms to me. They would have said, yes, we certainly welcome you and we want to do something. But instead, quite the opposite happened. They said, Daniel, we don't discriminate against patients. We don't have any disparate treatment or care in this um, health system. And I said, but how can that be? You're one of the largest Medicare providers in the country, one of the largest health systems, and you serve a very diverse uh, patient population. And yet all of these studies at that time, you're talking about... Um, over 6,000 peer-reviewed journal articles documenting disparities in healthcare. How is it that you have none? Really? That's interesting. Well, I tied my argument uh, to one that was an economic argument and said, listen, if you give me the, the chance, um, let me figure out where there may be some issues, right? Uh, let me conduct surveys with um, you know, prospective patients and former patients. Let me talk to providers inside and outside the system, as well as leaders in the community that you serve. I want to. I want to really understand if they see it the same way you do. At least give me that chance. And they said. Um, and I said, in addition to that, you know, what we create, right? If there is no issue, then fine. But if there is an issue, or there are issues that um, are preventing members of the community from going to your health system. Let us create a solution to that that would afford you a competitive advantage over your competitors, right? So that actually uh, seemed to have resonated, and it at least gave me the opportunity to conduct these uh, surveys and these um, interviews. And then after that, yes, the data did show there were issues. Um, not everyone saw uh, the system the way that the executives had. and. And right, I mean, right after that, immediately, I went about um, creating a cultural um, competency toolkit for the nurses, 
for the doctors, for the staff in the system that was then not only used throughout their um, central Florida uh, market, but then in hospitals throughout the United States, which I was really excited about. Well, during that episode, every time I try to create this toolkit, I came up against lawyers who kept saying to me, no, you can't, you can't do this project for one legal reason after another. And I kept saying to myself, well, gee, I'm only a, what, a sophomore in college. I don't have the power of a legal knowledge to push back. So I can't really defend what I'm doing because I don't have that knowledge base or that expertise. And instead of going into healthcare administration, I decided at that point that, you know what, I need to go to law school and I need to immerse myself in these health laws and in these um, uh, civil rights laws, the anti-discrimination laws, to understand why is it then that these lawyers at the health system would continue to rail against efforts to address health inequities in our hospitals. That didn't make any sense. Why would the law allow um, the status quo, right? So it brought me to law school and there I got really excited when we talked about the public policy arguments and I had the opportunity, it really afforded me the opportunity to delve deeper into these laws, into these policies. And I mean, the more I did, the more frustrated I became. So after that, I, I thought, you know what, instead of going into, let's say, uh, hospital administration and maybe a, a legal department in a hospital, I would like to go and, 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 and find out how this uh, sausage is made. I want to understand what, uh, what this process entails and why is it that every time I read a law, I just got more frustrated, right? Thinking to myself, did these people not realize when they were writing you know, such and such law that it would negatively impact certain groups or did they, right? Was it intentional or unintentional? And if so, what could we do to rectify it? So that brought me then after law school to Congress. And I had the opportunity to work with Congresswoman Donna Christensen, who was the first female physician member of Congress in its history. Uh, she was the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus Health Brain Trust at the time. And she mentored me and helped me to understand how this process really works. And from there, she also allowed me to take some of the ideas that I wanted to work on from law school into Congress, right? And to develop legislation that would address, um, you know, not only health disparities, but um, emergency preparedness, because around that time we had Katrina, we had the anthrax scare, so bioterrorism was a, a major issue and others. So I, I got to work on the things that I was really passionate about, but, you know, on as well as other um, topics and issues that opened up my, my eyes to a um, I, I guess to the bigger picture of why some of these things were happening. Well, after that, there was an opening in Senator uh, uh, Edward Kennedy's uh, office on his committee, rather, the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee. He was the chair of the committee um, and Senator Enzi from Wyoming was the ranking. And they were interested, both, uh, both leaders were interested in working on legislation to bolster mental health parity. They had worked on one in 1996, but uh, you know, employers and others um, and the Supreme Court, even with the Americans with Disabilities Act, had, um, had actually undermined many of the protections in these bills for consumers. 
And so they wanted to work on strengthening um, those laws and to fill the um, loopholes that were in these laws. And they needed someone with ERISA law experience. And I was the only one in my class that would dare take ERISA law, right? Very complex employee benefits law. But I did it and I could see how it paid off in the long run because now um, they were really eager to get somebody who could understand employee benefits and health policy. So I started immediately um, after talking with them and got to work on the Mental Health Parity Act, um, which we worked on for two years and we finally got passed. President George W. Bush uh, signed it into law. We worked on the Americans with Disabilities Act Amendments Act to again strengthen protections for people with disabilities. Um, that passed as well and President Bush signed it into law. And then uh, we worked on the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, as well as uh, reauthorizations of various uh, agencies, FDA, SAMHSA, NIH, um, uh, CDC, you name it. So really an exciting time to get involved in policy. But again, when I was there, it was an even more frustrating experience, right? Because every time that I tried to take an equity lens to this, you could see how it bothered some individuals to talk about how laws may negatively impact certain groups. They wanted to really approach it um, with a one-size-fits-all approach, which I didn't think was appropriate, right? Because not everyone um, is in a similarly situated um, or a similar situation, right? They're not similarly situated. And, and so you have to employ um, the type of resources that will help each group um, reach equity, right? If we care about helping them reach their optimal health, then we have to understand what are those barriers and challenges that they're confronted with. And not every single community is confronted by the same challenges and barriers, right? So after that now, um, Senator, Senators Barack Obama and um, Hillary Clinton um, were running uh, for, um, you know, president along with John McCain, and all three of them had been very interested in uh, health reform. So we approached all three and we talked about what are your priorities uh, for health reform? What is it, what are you going to do to really expand coverage and access to uh, vital health services? And everyone said, of course, I wanna do such and such and such. Um, but we then asked them, how can we, how can we ensure that uh, you will prioritize the advancement of health equity and the elimination of um, health disparities within your uh, bills, your respective policies. And they said, well, we would love to work with you um, on creating uh, such a prioritization. And we said, sure, that sounds great. Barack Obama, though, was the only one um, to explicitly incorporate the elimination of health disparities as a key component of health reform negotiations that he wanted to pursue should he win office. And uh, we were excited about that because it was the first time in US history that you had a presidential candidate interested in, in addressing this and explicitly putting it on their campaign platform. So with all of that said now, I know I could go on and on, Kathy, but I'll just say, you know, after that, we knew that the political stars were going to align because you know, when I talked about the frustration of trying to pass more equity-focused uh, policies, in my reading of history and in my research, what I'd come to understand is how difficult it can be to take an equity lens to these policies. More so than not, 
people have used the levers of policy and politics to hinder the advancement of health equity. And only on rare occasions had we been successful in this country in uh, using policy uh, to prioritize not only the elimination of health disparities, but the prioritization and the advancement of health equity. So knowing that, you know, I then was really interested as we were working on these bills, um, which were, I would call them, you know, um, limited insurance reform bills, mental health parity and gene and so forth. We wanted to work on more comprehensive and inclusive health reform. And we just knew that in 2008, in 2008, whoever won right after that, we would be afforded an opportunity of a lifetime to work on a historical health policy, to advance health equity, to reform our health system, um, to ensure that um, we were, again, uh, giving people what they needed, when they needed, in the amount that they need to reach their full health potential. And so at that point, I started to lead a group of about 300 national organizations uh, committed. These are very diverse group of folks, right? From women's groups to children's uh, advocacy groups to racial and ethnic minority groups to faith-based uh, groups, LGBTQ plus groups, older adults, veterans, um, you name it, right? All these disparate um, population groups, vulnerable and oftentimes marginalized groups, brought them together to, um, to help us develop a comprehensive policy solution. Um, one that was, you know, for the people, by the people. We, we, took, we took aims and, and made sure that um, we took the affirmative steps to bring in these individuals to that policy table to help us work on this. We wanted their unique lens on this bill because the, our idea on equity is that the people who are closest to the pain closest to the problems of health inequities in our society should be the ones to help us lead the solutions, right? They really should be leading the solutions and we work in tandem with them to ensure that it is codified into law. And so, you know, really looking at this notion that only policy can fix what policy is created, we leveraged that lever of policy. We leveraged the power of transdisciplinary uh, collaboration and together, we created, we worked on uh, America's most comprehensive and inclusive health reform law that took us 150 years to realize in this country. It is the most um, equity-focused health reform law ever created by the United States government um, post-Reconstruction. So I was extremely honored and privileged to have had that opportunity to leverage that moment in time to work on a bill that we knew was going to positively influence not just millions, but practically every single individual living in this country. That was also fascinating. I feel like we could take this interview in a hundred different directions right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I did want to talk about the book that you wrote last year. So we've heard a lot about social determinants of health over the last couple of years. Um, but you wrote a book about the political determinants of health. So could you explain what that means and what the difference is between the two of them? Oh, absolutely. So, so you know, we have been for the last, 
I want to say since 2008, actually when we started uh, working on health reform, there was a commission um, that was established by the World Health Organization to look at the social determinants of health, as Sir Michael Marmot, as Dr. David Williams at Harvard, Paula Braveman at the University of California, San Francisco, and others, have really opened our eyes to, right? And, and at that point, it was really interesting to hear that, you know, there are, there are these forces, um, these determinants, these drivers of inequities that are outside the walls of a hospital or clinic or um, practice, right? That we need to take in consideration as we think about the health outcomes that we are trying to tackle. And, and it, was, it was a fascinating um, idea I thought to to think about you know these multiple interacting determinants outside of healthcare that actually lead to the results that we see downstream. So through Michael Marmot and others, uh, David Williams, uh, they helped us uh, coin this this term of the social determinants of health, the structural and economic conditions in which people are born into, they live in, and they die in that affect all aspects of health, right? These are education. The more education, usually the healthier the individual, right? The issue of transportation. If you think about Katrina, for instance, I was speaking with Dr. David Satcher earlier today, and uh, he was reminding me, uh, you know, during his work uh, to address the devastation and the toll that Katrina had on on population groups within New Orleans, that 30% of black individuals who were living in New Orleans could not leave, right, and, and seek protection from the storm because they didn't have transportation. They didn't have a car, they didn't have a vehicle, they didn't have access to the bus or whatever. So transportation we know is a critical social determinant of health. And you, you go on, I mean, you think about all of these other issues, um, you know, from employment um, to fresh fruits and vegetables, fresh foods, uh, to the issue of racism, right, and, and how you know, racism really does take a toll on our overall overall health and well-being. And it not only just impacts the victims, but also the perpetrators, right? As we've seen with the declines in life expectancy in this country. So it, it's been a fascinating uh, journey to understand these social determinants of health. But I've long been troubled that when you think about the structural conditions that these individuals find themselves in, we have to ask ourselves, how did they come to be in the first place? How did they originate, right? And, and I felt like the equation just, it wasn't complete yet until we understood what were the instigators, the originators of these social determinants of health. So for instance, if you think about it in this way, let's think about you know, many black and brown communities in the United States. Um, and if you go in many of these communities, you may have often uh, noticed that right through these communities are a major highway splitting the communities in half, right? Or uh, railroad tracks cutting the communities again in half. Um, you may have noticed that um, there are a disproportionate number of bus depots in certain communities, right? Black and brown communities uh, versus uh, white communities. And, and you have to ask yourself, how did they come to be in the first place? Well, we know through public health research that, um, um, you know, it, many communities of color have the highest rates of asthma, right? 
they have higher rates of asthma than um, the rest of the population. Through public health research, we've been able to connect that to the fact that they're breathing in uh, some of the most polluted air in this country, right? But then again, we have to ask ourselves, where did that polluted air come from? Well, we can, of course, now tie it um, as a result of our public health researchers to this infrastructure that was created in their own backyards, the, the highways, right, that have elevated the pollution, air pollution, smog. Um, uh, we know, too, that um, in many instances, the railroad tracks, of, of course, have also led to higher rates of pollution. The bus depots um, with the smog, right, uh, have created um, air that is hard to breathe in. And so we, we know that you can tie it to these infrastructure, but that doesn't help us to really understand what created, has been perpetuating, and then of course exacerbating these health inequities. So we gotta take it one step further and connect it to the political determinant that created that social determinant or those structural conditions. So when you do that, you recognize that for every single one of these social determinants, there was a political action or an action that led to that midstream and then of course downstream um, impacts that we see today or experience today, quite frankly. So the notion is that preceding every social determinant of health is a legal, regulatory, an ordinance, um, uh, legislation, uh, or other policy, right, that basically led to that result. So the way I define this now, as I was researching this to understand this more, and to understand, you know, how politics and policy has been used over time to create this, I went back 400 years, and I don't go back to 1619, I'll go back to 1641. And I thought it was fascinating to see exactly how this worked. So in 1641, um, you know, when the abolitionists had been pushing back on this evil institution of slavery and seemed to be winning the debate of the time, the business interests, okay, that wanted to maintain and sustain their business model of slavery, uh, then strategized and approached the policymakers in these early colonies uh, with the idea of, of legalizing this terrible institution. And so they went to the policymakers in Massachusetts. They went to policymakers in Connecticut and New York and others and said, um, we want to draft legislation with you. We need to do that in order to sustain this. It has a, it'll have a detrimental impact on commerce, they made, they, they made the argument, right? If you don't sustain this evil institution. And, and so these policymakers said, you're absolutely right. And they started working and negotiating and then implementing, right? They passed and then implemented and enforced these policies. But, but that wasn't enough for them. Instead, they even went further, right? By, by developing and negotiating and passing and implementing additional policies that were designed to prevent black and indigenous population groups from being able to uh, earn their own money Right. The laws were explicitly prohibiting such. They were explicitly prohibiting them from um, raising their own food, from learning to read and write, from being educated. They were prohibited from socializing with one another. Right. And in many of the colonies, they also created 
uh, policies that again were recycled, right, from one colony to the next or one generation to the next, that um, ex explicitly prohibited these black and indigenous uh, populations from moving, right? Talk about exercise now, how important that is. Um, and in many respects, they couldn't go beyond a one mile radius, right? Without either a lantern, um, if it was at nighttime, or passes from their masters, right? Or from certain um, white leaders. So it was fascinating to see how these laws uh, were developed back then in the early uh, 1600s, and then how over time they were then being recycled again, like I said, from one generation into the next century, into another century, and all the way up until today. And I found it really fascinating how that was done and how strategic uh, opponents of health equity have been in their efforts to really leverage uh, these policy levers. So after looking at the evidence, after really scouring through laws and policies over the centuries, in understanding how this system works, right? The political process, the political system, and these other systems, how they worked in tandem. Um, I thought, well, I'm seeing a pattern here now. I'm seeing a trend. And so as I was trying to help folks understand how this has worked, I decided to define it, right? How do I define political determinants of health? So it makes sense. And I defined it as the, um, it's a, it really involves a systematic process of one, structuring relationships, uh, two, distributing resources, and three, administering power, operating simultaneously in ways, right, to mutually reinforce one another um, or influence one another to advance or hinder health equity. And so as I started looking at this now, I thought, well, this might be an easy way for health equity leaders and champions um, as they are looking at the effects of existing policies and as they are thinking about how um, to, pro to create um, new policies, here is what we can do, right? By looking at these three different buckets. So as you look at existing laws like the Homeowners Loan Corporation Act that intentionally redlined America in the, in the early uh, 1930s, we've moved away from explicitly racist laws from the 16th, 17th, and 1800s, but into the early 1900s, um, you know, civil rights lawyers and others said, wait a second, this is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. So we saw um, many racist uh, leaders uh, becoming a lot more savvy and adopting, creating and adopting more facially neutral policies, right? But once they were implemented, they had the same racist effect, right? So Homeowners Loan Corporation Act is one of those facially neutral policies that when it uh, was created and once they were um, uh, going out into communities to rate them on a scale of A, B, C, or D, and to then use those reports to determine additional policies, such as who should get uh, VA and FHA home mortgage loans, um, you could see the impact that that's had, right? In structuring relationships, right? By redlining and, and starving communities of resources that they needed to thrive, essentially keeping them um, put, right? Uh, if you think about blood quantum requirement laws, again, designed to prevent uh, black, uh, white, indigenous populations from mixing, or the anti-miscegenation laws in this country that, again, were designed to separate the population groups. You can see how those work, right? But then think about it when it doesn't. It's not as explicit. Uh, the notion of, um, oh, God, what's the word I want to use? Like uh, accessible um, housing, for instance, right? 
Um, the fact that you see ordinances making it difficult uh, for folks today. Again, you have to really think more strategically about how these structure relationships and you kind of see uh, what you need to do to not go down that rabbit hole. The same thing with um, distribution of resources. We know there's been a dearth of health services. Um, uh, you talk about uh, in COVID testing kits and vaccinations um, early on in, in many black and brown communities. Again, when you look at the appropriations process, discretionary and non-discretionary uh, funded programs, you, you get to see then how like, these communities were starved of the resources that they needed not only to survive pandemics or other crises, but also thrive in our society that continues to intentionally put up barrier after barrier to stifle their, their ability to, to reach health equity. And then lastly, when you think about the administration of power and how that's been, how that's been used, right? Every single time in this country, when folks have tried to give and share power, um, President Abraham Lincoln and his supporters at the time in, uh, during the Civil War worked on a policy and worked on additional policies to expand civil rights to newly free people and to poor whites who had been displaced as a result of the Civil War and to give them greater protections uh, for voting and so forth. Well, every time that we see these marginalized groups um, getting uh, uh, access to greater power, right, and in sharing that power, then the political forces slam back and then enact policies or overturn those policies that would uh, give them the ability to, um, you know, basically advocate for themselves, their families, and their communities. And so you see how together it's worked to, to um, prevent folks from reaching their optimal health. Now, if I could quickly, Kathy, I don't know if I have time, but I'd like to also talk about it in the context of my um, model, my political determinants of health model. Sure, go ahead. Is that okay? Okay, all right. So in, in the model now, what I've done is to uh, pull together from a historical lens, but also a political science, legal and public health lens, uh, you know, what really has been used in terms of the interventions and the barriers to advance health equity or hinder them, right? What's worked? And, and what can we, how can we think about this uh, more strategically? So my political determinants of health model really looks at these levers and these um, tools that have been leveraged over time. And the idea here is that once a um, health equity is identified, a perceived health equity is identified, um, the idea here is that you must conduct your due diligence to ascertain whether the health outcome is what? Systemic, is it avoidable, and is it unjust? How far can you venture to understand whether it is an institutional or structural barrier that created this inequity or is perpetuating and exacerbating uh, the inequity that you seek to address? And what is the policy change that you desire Right? And can you demonstrate the value of investing in change? Because as I mentioned earlier in our interview, you know, usually you know, policy has been used to maintain the status quo. So it was initially used forcefully uh, to create these um, disparate health outcomes, but then it has been used to maintain status quo. How in the world can you leverage this then to show the value of investing in the kind of change then that will disrupt the status quo. So that's important. And, and in our country, in the United States, you know, leaders, advocates have to realize and understand 
the disquieting and harsh truth that the political determinants of health inequities have rarely been addressed unless their reduction or elimination served other purposes. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's important to understand that the success of any advocacy effort, at least, right, for the time period, since I go, can't go into everything, um, depends on how palatable they are to a commercial interest and a government investment value. If you can tie your policy agenda to those, the chances of your policy getting over the finish line and getting implemented are a lot higher. And it was in those rare instances where health equity leaders in this country, whether mental health reformers, minority health leaders, universal health care leaders and others, uh, those leaders who realized that truth and leveraged as such were the ones that were able to get their policy uh, implemented. So it's, it's really a fascinating uh, look at, again, how this is done, what has worked, what hasn't, and why. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic, we yeah. saw a lot of these health inequities come into focus. I mean, you mentioned before uh, asthma and how that affected people, um, or just the fact that a lot of people in black and brown communities didn't have the option of staying at home and had to work and thus were more susceptible to the disease. So I guess, what are some of the lessons that we've learned from that or what do we have to think about from a health policy standpoint moving forward to address some of these issues oh my gosh absolutely so you know number one lesson that i think we're 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 learning is that um covid19 hasn't been striking all groups equally because our social and ec economic policies haven't been benefiting all groups equally in this country um it's also very clear that um, the nation's health is not an organic outcome. It is not a coincidence that these um, racial and ethnic minority groups and other marginalized groups have been suffering tremendously during this quadruple pandemic, quite frankly, that we're in. Um, and it's owing, again, to uh, decisions from the past that continue to haunt us um, and continue to find their way uh, in our, our, our current um, policies as well as proposed policies. So, so we've got to be mindful of how this um, whole occurrence uh, happened uh, in the first place. The other lessons that we've come to realize too, as we were trying to mitigate the impact of COVID-19 in these vulnerable communities, um, was that when we look back, we went back all the way to 1793, Intentionally, because this constitutional republic of ours was formed in, what, 1789, right? We established our government, started meeting in 1789. So there was a major epidemic that struck the United States, yellow fever, uh, back in 1793. But once you go back that far and you're coming all the way again throughout history, you realize that it's, a, it's the same groups of people who are most negatively impacted during these times, right? Racial and ethnic minority groups immigrant communities, lower socioeconomic status white individuals, and uh, people with disabilities. They are most negatively impacted. And so if we know that to be the case, right, why is it that we see the same result over and over and over again? That is unacceptable, right? Especially we thought in 2020, 
with all the technological capability and knowledge that we have on infectious, uh, infectious diseases, on health care, on health equity, certainly we can stem the tide of this pandemic and realize for the first time in U.S. history an equitable response. But my goodness, what I have learned is how challenging, right, um, that can be. Um, especially during a pandemic. It was hard before a pandemic, um, but even more so during a pandemic where you have mis misinformation running rampant, where you have fear that is higher than ever, um, and all these other variables that you, 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 know, you might not necessarily see um, before a pandemic. So, so it was interesting for us as we looked and we thought, well, what can we actually do, right? That is within our um, power and within the bandwidth, the limited bandwidth that we have, how can we realize an equitable response, if not during this time, perhaps for future pandemics? So we looked back and it was clear to us that data had always been an issue. Um, and accessing the data during moments of pandemics and epidemics were an issue. And it wasn't until post-event, right? Once a, an epidemic or a pandemic subsided that you were able to get access, researchers were able to get access to the data to, again, confirm that it's the same groups of people, right, that are most negatively impacted. Well, we wanted to do something differently. We wanted to be able to understand in as close to real time where those uh, uh, areas, those challenges um, were, um, where which population groups and, and geographic regions of the country um, were disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. We wanted to know where supplies were going, where were the testing kits going to, the vaccines, um, ventilators and others. Again, were communities, lower socioeconomic status communities, other marginalized communities, are, were we going to see the same result or could we then develop a tool that would hold our leaders accountable, right? And share with them at least so they can't avoid because in the past the argument was, well, we don't know who's most negatively impacted because we don't have that data right now, right? So it was a very convenient argument to make uh, when data was harder to, to get hold of. Well, on the front end, what we decided to do was to help work within a co coalition called We Must Count. And in that coalition, we worked to ensure that data was being collected, but it was also being reported, right? And being disaggregated by at least race and ethnicity Right? We'd love for people, we'd love by disability status and other statuses if possible, but at least by race and ethnicity and um, geographic regions so we could tell where the problems were greatest. Well, from that effort, uh, we did get policymakers who were adverse at first. They did not want to give that um, data. They did not want to show those uh, data um, because they were fearful that um, you know, it might show that the state is what discriminating against one group versus another. Again, a similar argument, if you recall from the beginning, with the hospital executives that I worked with who didn't want to share that data. They didn't want to go there because they were fearful that it would um, show some disparity. Well, we thankfully in 2020 now had health equity minded leaders in positions of power who said this is unacceptable. Uh, we're not going to allow that to continue. We're going to release the data and um, we're going to ensure that policies are created uh, and, and resources are, are sent to groups that really need it right now to survive. And, um, and we got that. 
well, in addition to getting them to release the data, we then thought it would be important to create a comprehensive, the nation's first health equity tracker so that policy influencers, these are your advocates, your researchers, your policymakers, anyone who really cares about advancing health equity would have access to the data, right? The data that we created or the system that we created, a data platform, the data is completely democratized. So you're able to pull it and do your own analysis if you're in a state or a county um, and you're interested in understanding what has been happening relative to COVID, but even beyond that, how about the comorbidities that strike disproportionately? You're then also able to track those, diabetes, COPD. But, but we also wanted to make sure, you heard me mention this is a health equity tracker. We didn't just want a health disparities tracker, we wanted a health equity tracker. And we wanted to, again, help people connect the dots to what were fueling these poor health outcomes, right, among these population groups. And so, you know, we are um, overlaying the data with various social determinants of health data, but then also taking it a step further through our legal epidemiology data sets that are being created by our legal epidemiology team uh, members to show the political determinants of health connection as well, right? So that they can understand, you know, which policies have been mitigating or exacerbating uh, these um, uh, health inequities and, and COVID-19 uh, cases and hospitalizations and so forth. So it's called Health Equity Tracker. It's our healthequitytracker.org um, data platform. And folks are welcome to come on it. We welcome folks to join and help us, you know, think about other variables. We're going to be adding mental and, and behavioral health uh, factors, six of them, uh, from, you know, Alzheimer's to addiction to suicidality, um, anxiety, depression, trauma, you name it. And we want to continue uh, developing that, that phase of the tracker because we think it's important to show how important mental health is to systemic health moving forward and how these other social and political variables impact such. Now, a lot of the discussion that I've heard around social determinants of health recently has centered around, you know, yes, we understand this is an issue, but for hospital leaders, they feel like they don't quite know what to do about it. Yeah. Uh, so do you have any practical advice for them as to how their organizations can deal with some of these issues? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, first you gotta acknowledge, right? Um, that there is a problem. I think that's the first step in, in moving forward. Um, there are a lot of folks who still deny the existence of health inequities. Um, they continue to put their heads in the sand to avoid um, what is an inevitable conversation. And, and we need to recognize that um, we're, we're on borrowed time right now. So those health leaders that actually care enough to begin with and have the courage to move beyond merely nibbling around the edges of the problem of health inequities, who want to do something substantive around this issue, they are the ones that will be rewarded in the end because of what we are seeing in terms of demographic shifts in this country. We are becoming a more racially pluralistic society. Over the next several decades, we know that we will continue to see increased diversity in this country. And if these racial and ethnic minority children, first of all, think about in 2020. 2020 was a very interesting year, not only because of COVID, but that was the first time in U.S. history now that you saw the number of um, children of color, 
outnumbering white children in terms of their birth rates, right? And it's been fascinating to see that trend. Well, if these children are coming from families and communities that are sicker and dying younger prematurely, well, it raises all sorts of economic and national security issues for the nation. And I think this is what leaders now are recognizing at various levels of government, right? Locally, state, nationally, and even internationally, why it is important to really tackle these health inequities. So how do you practically do this? We talked about acknowledging it, but in addition to acknowledging it, you gotta learn, you gotta understand these drivers of inequities, right? Um, you gotta understand these political determinants of health, quite frankly, and understand you know, what has been fueling these uh, results. And, and then from there, you have to understand that this is an issue as contentious as it is. I mean, health policy alone is contentious. You talk about adding an equity lens to this, um, to this work, my gosh, it's equally um, or doubly contentious, right? So it's gonna take tremendous courage to do so because this movement to advance health equity really is not for the faint of heart. It's gonna take people who have courage and who can persevere until the job is done. It's a very tiring process. Um, as you can see, it took us a, you know, what, 75 years um, from the first time that the government was formed, the United States was formed as a constitutional government, um, basically from 1789 to about uh, 1865, before we were able to realize America's first major health policy uh, that uh, was signed into law by President Abraham Lincoln, but then was dismantled seven uh, years after uh, by, by folks, opponents of this agenda. Um, it would take us 150 years after that, again, to be able to work on health policies uh, that took an equity lens through the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. So can we wait 300 more years before we're able to realize something? We don't have that time anymore. We're really on borrowed time. And, and if we truly believe in creating a society that is healthier, more inclusive and more equitable, then we've got to act now. So we've got to address, right? Not only the social determinants of health, which you know are becoming a lot more palatable for leaders, but we have to take that step further and address the political determinants of health inequities, right? that have been really the instigators of this. We also need to understand and research the histories of our communities that we serve in, right? And understand the barriers, the challenges that they've had, had to be, that they've been confronting. Um, I think it's very important that we understand um, that at the community level, it's so easy to make judgments, to make assumptions about the people who reside in these communities without understanding the history and the facts um, that have uh, driven the results that you see today. Um, so I think that's really important that they take, this, take that step. And then lastly, I would say, you know, just understanding that this is a continuous process, right? Health equity is a journey and a destination, right? There's an argument about, is it just a journey and not a destination? Well, I, I see it as both because, um, but, you, you really have to have something to strive for, right? There's gotta be a goal. And, um, but understanding that even when you reach that goal or try to, that goalpost is always what? Moved, right? Over and over again. So it's gonna take a lot of political savvy, uh, policy acumen, 
in order to drive the results that we care so deeply about uh, moving forward. Now, do you ever think that we're going to reach the point where healthcare is not politicized? I mean, is it possible to find any common ground when it comes to things like health inequity? Well, <laughs> that is a great question, Kathy. And um, all I can say is that um, I would hope so. If we truly can get over the role that racism, sexism, ableism, homophobia uh, plays in the creation of our policies, if we can truly um, educate the masses uh, about these deleterious motives, right? And um, these uh, destructive forces that really undergird our policies, then perhaps it wouldn't be deemed as politicized, right? It wouldn't be as politicized moving forward. But health policy has been, of all the um, public policy issues in this country, health policy is always the most contentious. Usually it's the last one to, to be addressed from an appropriation standpoint. Uh, you add a layer of racial equity on that piece, and my goodness, it becomes, like I said, uh, doubly politicized. But um, if we can, as Martin Luther King Jr. admonished us to do, uh, not only, you know, look at um, the political aspect of these issues, right, but also work on the front end uh, in educating people and sensitizing them to these issues, then maybe a few hundred years from now, it won't be as politicized. But in the near term, even in the um, intermediate term, I don't see this not being a politicized issue. You have folks that are working um, to oppose any effort to advance this. Um, you have opponents of health equity that have now been working and they are strategizing, they've come together, they've mobilized, and they are intent at pushing an ideology that is opposed to this notion of a more healthy and equitable and inclusive society, right? So as they continue to do that, they will continue to, of course, brainwash many people uh, through their anti-intellectual uh, efforts. And we now need to make sure that we are fighting like those before us who have fought, right? And in many cases were in the minority, right? They were the dissenters. It wasn't as popular as it is today. Um, but still as, as difficult as ever as we've seen. But we've got to keep pressing and we've got to collectively uh, come together um, and harness that power of collaboration to stomp out the inequities. Because I think the good news is that these structural barriers that we've been talking about almost for an hour now, you know, they're not permanent. They're not permanent. And you heard me say that policy can fix what policy is created, but we've got to have the will, the political will and otherwise to, to, to effect those changes. So we'll continue to work on the hearts and the minds of many in our country, and, um, and hopefully that will translate uh, throughout the process, this political process, from voting to government and policy uh, in the long term. Well, Daniel, thank you so much. I learned so much from this conversation, and I think my listeners probably did as well. Thank, thank you. you. My pleasure. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Smarter Healthcare Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Daniel, you can follow him on Twitter at Daniel E. Dawes. You can follow me on Twitter at KSusich or at SmartHC Podcast. Feel free to get in touch with comments or guest suggestions. 
to listen to more episodes, visit our website at www.smarthcpodcast.com or find us on your favorite podcast app. I'd appreciate if you would subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.